Welcome to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. Each podcast, I'll answer your questions about the Old Testament, point you to great books and blogs, highlight the best Old Testament sermons and lectures, and walk you through an Old Testament passage to demonstrate how to find and enjoy Jesus in the Old Testament. Thankfully, Apple have now given us an official podcast feed, and you can find that link below this podcast on my blog at headhearthand.org. Here's my quote of the week. I'm an absolute maximalist when it comes to Christ in the Old Testament. Christ can be found throughout the Old Testament. His Father wrote it. That's a quote from Gordon Conwell, systematic theology professor Richard Lintz. My book of the week, well, cheating here a bit, I've got four books in our book of the week section this week, but they're all by the same author, so I think that's okay. And I'm speaking of Nancy Guthrie here, and highly recommending her series of books in the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament series. There are now four of these. The first is called The Promised One, Seeing Jesus in Genesis. Second is The Lamb of God, Seeing Jesus in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Third, The Son of David, Seeing Jesus in the Historical Books. And the fourth is the wisdom of God, seeing Jesus in the Psalms and wisdom books. And these are fantastic books for women's Bible studies. You can also buy a DVD series to accompany the books. And each week's study in these books follows a pattern. First of all, there's a section on personal Bible study, where there's the Bible reading with questions to follow. Second, there's the teaching chapter where Nancy explains and applies the passage. Third section is called Looking Forward seeing how God is fulfilled, is fulfilling, and will yet fulfill his word. And then fourthly, there's a discussion guide and questions for the group. My sermon of the week, I'm choosing Tim Keller's sermon at the Gospel Coalition National Conference in 2011, calling Getting Out. It was the standout session for me. Again, you can find the link to that underneath this podcast on my blog. My blog of the week, well, I love Jim Hamilton's brief blog post on Jesus in the Old Testament in John 3, 1 through 15. It demonstrated how important it is to know the Old Testament if we're to understand the New. Now, you really, you can't get a more essentially New Testament passage than John 3. Yet Jim points to seven Old Testament passages that not only form the backdrop to John 3, but that Jesus is actually claiming to fulfill in John 3. Have a quick read of that. It will certainly motivate you to study the Old Testament more and to look for more Old Testament, New Testament connections and New Testament passages. It's called Jesus in the Old Testament in John 3, 1 through 15. Link below the podcast at the blog. Good two questions of the week. First is via Twitter. J.F. Maddox asked, In your new book, you say that angels were created in the first six days. Do you have scripture to prove this? Well, it's true the Bible does not explicitly state when the angels were created, but we can draw some conclusions by implication from other verses of scripture. For example, we know that God created all things, including the angels. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. This verse mentions the heavens and the earth first, which we know were created in the first day. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. 
Then it goes on to speak of what fills the heavens and the earth, including principalities or powers, usually understood to refer to angelic beings. Also in Job 38, 4-7, the angels, called the sons of God there, rejoiced over God's creative work on either day one or day three. So clearly angels were created at some point during the creation week and no later than day three. Second question came from Henry, said thanks for your book, recently purchased it and it's been helpful. My question to you is that it's, it's pretty easy to connect the ark and Jesus together. However, would you go, go further saying that Noah is a type of Christ? This is obviously harking back to the first podcast as well on Noah's ark. Well, let me answer this question with another question. Let me, let's go back to my definition of a type. A type is a real person, place, object or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Christ's person and work. So, we ask the question, would Old Testament believers have seen Noah as a person that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Christ's person and work? Well, Noah's father Lamech, along with other Old Testament believers, was looking for the birth of the Messiah, promised in Genesis 3.15. That's why in Genesis 5.29 we read that Lamech called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Noah means rest, and Lamech was hoping his son would be the rest giver. So, clearly Old Testament believers were actively looking, either for the promised Messiah, or those who would prefigure him, typify him, be a predictive picture of him. Every deliverer that God raised up in the Old Testament was, to some extent, a type of the Messiah. Therefore, as one of the preeminent deliverers in the Old Testament, yes, Noah was a type of Christ. Also, if the ark was a type, then then so was Noah, because you can't really separate the two. Old Testament believers looked at the ark and at Noah as really like a two-sided mirror that showed them not only what God was like, but how he would save So my answer is yes, Noah was a type of Christ. So keep sending in your comments and questions. You can email jesusoneverypage at gmail.com, tweet me a question at David P. Murray, or leave a comment at the blog or a voice message on the podcast homepage. Just click send voicemail, record a quick question that I'll broadcast and answer next week. Commentaries. Well, This week we're focusing on Exodus, and I have to say my favourite Exodus commentary, and one of my favourite commentaries of all time, is Phil Riken's commentary on Exodus. Published by Crossway and subtitled Saved for God's Glory, this includes the most balanced model of typological interpretation I've ever come across in the book. It's sermonic in form, the commentary, but still a wonderful resource. In Christian Focus's mentor series of commentaries, we find Exodus by John L. Mackay. He was actually my Hebrew and Old Testament professor at seminary, just as in all his other Old Testament commentaries. Without getting bogged down in long explanations, he deals in great detail with the text of Scripture and demonstrates a tremendous knowledge of different interpretations. You still have to do a lot of work to get from this to a sermon, but he provides an essential foundation for any sermon. Another commentary I always consult in Exodus is John Currid's two-volume set from Evangelical Press. It's a fine combination of thorough scholarship and accessibility and always helpful pointers to devotional and practical application. 
For much briefer but still thorough treatment of Exodus, you'll want to read Alec Motier's The Message of Exodus in the Bible Speaks Today series. Links under the podcast at the blog. But this week I want to try and walk you through Leviticus 14, the cleansing of the leper. Now, teachers love metaphors. They are uh, brief and, and memorable ways of communicating observations about life. For example, to convey speed, we say, quick as a flash. To emphasize kind of laborious movement, we say, as slow as molasses. When God wants to explain forgiveness, he says we are white as snow. To illustrate how his thoughts are so much greater than ours, he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts. So, how about a metaphor for freedom or liberty? How about free as a bird? That's the symbol, that's the picture that God uses in Leviticus 14 to illustrate the new liberty of a healed leper. We're going to look at the first seven or eight verses of Leviticus 14, but first let's Put that chapter in context. The book of Leviticus has two main emphases, laws of sacrifice and laws of purity, sacrificial rituals and purification rituals. But these are intertwined. The laws of purification and cleansing show the Israelites how much they need forgiveness through sacrifice. And the laws of sacrifice provide the ceremonial cleansing that no amount of washing could. And remember, none of these sacrifices or cleansing washed away sin. They they did not atone for moral guilt. They only atoned for ceremonial guilt and only restored to ceremonial rites. In other words, the sacrifices and washings only restored an unclean person to the tabernacle and temple and their rituals. They never, ever washed away moral guilt and sin. They never brought a person into God's saving love. They pointed to the only sacrifice and the only washing that could, the coming messiahs. So in summary, Leviticus in its sacrifices and washings reminded the Israelites of God's holiness and of their unholiness. So let's look at the disease of leprosy here. First of all, at the restrictions resulting from being a leper in Israel and and then at the cleansing of the leper that made him free as a bird. Leviticus chapter 13 has 59 detailed verses explaining the difference between the serious disease of leprosy, what we now call Hansen's disease, and other minor skin diseases like psoriasis and eczema. Clearly, leprosy was a difficult disease to diagnose, especially in its early stages, requiring expert priests to examine the suspected skin problem and pronounce whether they were leprous or not, clean or unclean. So, why so many verses and so much focus on leprosy? It wasn't just for health reasons. It was to teach spiritual lessons. God was using physical leprosy to train the children of Israel to understand about the deeper problem of spiritual leprosy. Time and again, leprosy is associated with sin in the scriptures. Miriam was cursed with leprosy for her jealousy of Moses. Gehazi was judged with leprosy for his greedy deceit. King Uzziah was cursed with leprosy for usurping the position of the priest. The psalmist and Isaiah use the graphic and gruesome language of leprosy to describe their sinfulness. So, whatever other spiritual lessons they learned, they at least learned 
that sin is like leprosy, and that they needed a trained spiritual expert to diagnose both the early stages of leprosy and the early stages of sin in their lives. Now, if upon examination the suspect was found to be leprous, the priest announced him, or pronounced him, unclean, and commanded him to leave the city. What a terrible moment for the sufferer. He woke up in his own bed, in his own home, among his own family and familiar surroundings, and now he was being banished, perhaps for the rest of his life. The leper tore his clothes and demonstrated other signs of mourning as he left the priest to walk out the city gates for the last time. He was walking away from family, from friends, and above all, from God's presence. He was excluded from his home and the tabernacle or the temple. What a sad, lonely, mournful walk. Away from all that was comfortable and familiar and into the desert and all the danger and discomfort that met him there. As he went, crying out, unclean, unclean, watching people scurry away from him. The city gates were shut at night, leaving him locked out. But... He's not only locked out from family, friends and church, he was also locked in to a new and awful community. The gatherings of lepers that could be found outside most major cities in the Middle East. They gathered for group safety as they were very easy prey for robbers and wild animals. Building a fire at night, sleeping close by one another. What a miserable and terrible existence. Surrounded by grotesque human decay and horrific suffering, no respect of persons here. All stations and classes were found together. Terrible sights, terrible sounds, and yes, even terrible smells of rotting flesh. And yet, the lepers were locked into this community, severely restricted in where they could go, what they could touch, what they, who they could be with. Yeah, there were no walls, no bars, nor locks, but the leper was effectively imprisoned. Yet, God intended all this to be educational, to be spiritually helpful. He didn't do this to be cruel, but to be kind. And his kindness was not just in protecting the rest of the community from infectious diseases, but in using these painful circumstances to teach his people about sin and its consequences. No doubt the priests who regularly visited to inspect also taught the lepers to think about the the spiritual lessons behind the physical pain. And maybe we can imagine the lepers talking about this around the fire at night. Well, what do you think this is all about? What does this teach us about God, about ourselves? Surely at least sometimes the physical affliction led to spiritual conviction. As previously happy and comfortable sinners began to understand the nature of sin and its consequences, how it locks out from God and locks in with the living dead. And even at the leper's old home, were there not new conversations? Mom, Mom, why are you crying? Oh, son, you know how Dad hasn't been very well recently? Well, today he went to the priest who, who diagnosed leprosy and pronounced them unclean. He's been banished outside the city and has to live with the lepers we used to see when we went to visit your uncle up north. But why, mom? Oh, son, 
God's teaching us something here. Not, not quite sure what, but, oh, I've understood today in a new way, in a way I've never understood before, how awful sin is, and how it shuts us out from God, and shuts us in with those condemned to die. I've asked the priest to come round this morning, son, and I'm hoping he'll explain more to us. Locked out and locked in. But Leviticus 14 also holds out the possibility of healing, cleansing and freedom. In fact, its vivid lesson is that even a locked out, locked in leper can become as free as a bird. What's clear is that if any leper is healed, it's God that did the healing. The priest in Leviticus 14 was called in to pronounce him clean, but he was not the healer. Now, the chapter presupposes that at least from time to time, God would heal a leper. What a, what a wonderful moment for that man, woman, boy or girl when they begin to see healing happening in their bodies. They were then to call for the priest who would come out to inspect. What a meeting that would have been. So much so much hope, so much anticipation. So the priest examined and analysed and prepared to make his declaration of clean or still unclean. And the words the leper was waiting to hear from the priest most of all, get the birds. Get the birds? Yes, get the birds. God has healed you, my friend. And now we must go through the cleansing ceremony. Get two sparrows, cedar wood, hyssop and a string of scarlet and and bring them to me. That's the ceremony outlined in Leviticus 14. And we're told there that the priest then killed one bird and dipped the little blood that was in the bird into a bowl with fresh water. The water was to sort of multiply the quantity of blood because the next step was to take the living bird, bird that was still alive, the cedar, the hyssop, the scarlet, and submerge them in the bowl of blood-stained water. Priest then took the cedar, hyssop and scarlet, sprinkled that bowing leper seven times and pronounced him clean as he did so. The blood-soaked leper then looked up to see the priest take the living sparrow, now dripping with the blood of the dead sparrow, and he released it into the open field. (laughs) No words would be required as the leper, dripping in blood, watched the sparrow, also dripping in blood, fly up, up, up and away. Previously captive in the hand of the priest, it's now freed, liberated, restrictions gone, flying wherever and wherever it wanted, left, right, up, down, fast, slow. They both watched priest and leper, the bird soared heavenwards and out of sight, free, free as a bird. The leper would surely get it. That, that's me, that's me, that's me, free as a bird, no longer locked out and locked in. I can go anywhere I want, back to family, back to friends, back to the presence and worship of God and all made possible. By the death of a substitute, the blood of another has set me free as that bird. What a vivid picture. The death, the dipping, the deliverance. 
What an unforgettable picture. No cleansed leper would look at any bird in the same way ever again. Every time they would see a pigeon, or a sparrow, or an eagle, at home or at work, in the city square, they'd be reminded, free as a bird, that's me, free as a bird, through sacrificial blood. What an, un, what an educational picture. Perhaps the priest would sometimes add words of explanation, but most of the time the picture spoke louder than a thousand words. And when that leper walked home that day and entered his house, what rejoicing, what celebration, what bird lessons would be taught in that home. And, and what hope would be kindled of a future deliverer who would shed his blood for the freedom and liberty of all his believing people. Whatever this chapter teaches, it teaches that sin like leprosy pollutes, separates, excludes, ruins, saddens, imprisons, locks out, locks in and locks down. But salvation through substitution cleanses, reunites, includes, restores, rejoices and liberates it frees from guilt, it frees from impurity, it frees from judgment, and frees even from sin itself. Next time you see a bird, you watch it soaring, flying, liberated. Think, that's what Jesus has done for me.